Today's Bible reading, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to chapter 2, verses 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Adam. Let's pray as we come to consider this part of the scriptures. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. As Lydia said earlier, this week we're starting a new series of sermons looking at the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through to 11, and that'll take us uh, right through to just before Christmas. And we've entitled the series, as you can see there, The Beginning of Everything. And this is, this is a foundational part of the Bible, not just because it happens to be at the front. It's foundational for understanding the Bible's message. In fact, if you take these 11 chapters out, almost nothing else in the entire Bible makes complete sense, including, including the gospel of, of salvation. And I think, I think these chapters are more radical than we sometimes realise. There's a familiarity to them, as Lydia said. And they're more important than we expect. And if you're joining us this morning and you're exploring the Christian faith, and I hope that is you, and you're still sort of thinking through where you stand, I think, I think these chapters really offer the building blocks for what I find to be the most coherent and compelling worldview on which to base your life. Uh, you be the judge, but uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, to engage with this part of the Bible. Uh, I'm going to make three points this morning. Uh, they're not particularly punchy, sorry about this. They, they, they have to, you have to jot them down. Uh, my first point is going to be creator and creation. The second point, word and reality. And thirdly, God's signature. Creator and creation, word and reality, God's signature. In my subjective view, the Bible has the best opening line of any book ever. That's a killer, that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, you can't top that. That's just a great start for anything. Uh, it's a fantastic opening line. But of course, you get past that sentence, and then you get into all the, uh, on this day this happened, on that day God did that. 
And all those verses that follow the rest of the chapter have been debated by Christian people uh, ever, ever since they were first, uh, first written. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because Christians, uh, like, like uh, Jewish people before, have a very high regard for the authority of the Bible. They say, well, this is God's word. So we know that. But we also know that the Bible contains all sorts of different styles of literature. The Bible contains historical reports. The Bible contains letters. It contains biographies. It contains poems. It contains parables. It contains songs. And so we read this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, and the question is, what type of writing is this? What type of literature is this? Is this a historical report? If you were there with a video camera as these things were going on, is this what you would have seen? Or is it something else? Is it a parable? Is it symbolic in some way? Is it poetry? And especially in the last, say, 150 years, as, uh, as natural science has evolved, this has been a source of debate among Christians. And coincidentally, when this was first written many thousands of years ago, there was also a debate raging about the origins of the world. The positions in this debate were very different. It was generally believed in the ancient Middle East that the world had come about as a result of a, a contest between two mighty Babylonian gods. And one had slaughtered the other and had used the lifeless carcass to, to fashion what we know as our world. That was a prevailing view. That checks out. And he, he had drained the blood. This is a bit gruesome. He drained the blood from the body and had used the blood to make the human race. And their purpose was to exist as slaves for the gods. Well, it's a view. What did, what did Bible people proclaim in the face of this? Well, they said this. No, no, no. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was a radical alternative view. And we're going to consider it this morning. When, by that formula, the heavens and the earth, it means everything. All there is. At the start of all there is, God created all there is. And that tells us there, there, are, only two, there are only two realities. There are only two things that exist. The creator and the creation that depends on him. The creator and dependent creatures. That's all there is. There are no other gods. There are no other realities. And this chapter, as you go through it, it's, it's contrary to the kind of war of the gods theory, it's a picture of creation coming into being in this very orderly way as a result of God's will and design and power. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, 
this is before creation, this moment. And it's interesting, it's, you can do this challenge yourself in the next 15 seconds. The challenge is how to conceptualise nothing. How do you conceptualise non-existence? Like, what is nothingness? It's not easy to come up with an answer. I think because we're modern people, when we think nothingness, we kind of imagine something like the vacuum of space or something. But that's not nothing. That, that's a thing. That's a vacuum. That's space. What, what is non-existence? Well, this was, uh, this was what they came up with in their culture, this idea of a, a swirling, formless watery sort of chaos that's non-existence but God is present God is present before anything else exists and he goes on God said let there be light and there was light God saw that the light was good he separated the light from the darkness God called the light day the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So he made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And it was evening and there was morning the second day. And so it goes on. It's a picture of God entering chaos and non-existence and starting to, to order and create and generate a coherent reality. And for them, of course, this is a clear refutation of some sort of chaotic battle of the gods version. But it also challenges some of our assumptions. For us, it might be a refutation of the we are all products of random chance version. That There's some sort of intentionality that gives rise to the world as it exists. And you see how, I hope you saw this as, as Adam read for us, you see how systematic it is. And you may not have noticed this on first reading, but it, it ends up being two sets of three days each. And there's a certain patterning here. This is a bit nerdy, but have a look at this. You could say in days one to three, God gives form to the world. And in days four to six, he fills those forms with life and creatures. Of course, the seventh day, which is not a day of creation at all, it's, it's a kind of culmination, it's the great... It's the great ongoing Sabbath day of rest. So on day one, day and night, light and darkness. But then on day four, he creates the sun and the moon, sky and water, birds and fish, and so on. You can see that yourself if you reflect on the, uh, those verses in front of you. And this is one of the reasons why, in my own view, what we have in Genesis chapter 1 is not literal 24-hour days, uh, but rather a sort, of, a, a sort of poem or a song of some sort. There's, there's structure to it. And even there's a sort of sing-song um, uh, rhythm to it, where it says evening, morning, first day, evening. It's almost like there's a, not exactly a chorus, but a refrain, let's say, as he goes through um, and as I said before, Christians have taken different views on this. There's, there's different views even among us here at St. James, of course. That's my own view. Now, what do we learn here? Well, as I said, we learn that there are only two realities, a creator and a dependent creation. And that means, we don't often think in these terms, everything that you see everywhere, including yourself, is, is a creature is a creature 
has creation. Things, things don't just exist. They have a creator. There's something behind it. There's something on which their existence depends. And this also means that at the highest level of principle, God must be relevant in some way to everything because he's the creator of everything. And I think our, our society, perhaps you also, we tend to miss this because we've collapsed religion down as if it's about, oh, religion is about your, your personal views on, on this or that. And so you'll get politicians who will rebuke church leaders for commenting on industrial relations policy or, uh, or economics or town planning or something like this. And the politician will say, listen, Reverend, you're not authorised here. You're not authorised to have a view on this. This is not your area of relevance. As if this is part of, this is part of the reality that has no creator. And I think we're tempted to believe this ourselves, actually. As we think, okay, here I'm in church on Sunday, it's quarter to ten. Obviously God is relevant. We're talking about God, we're singing about God. We're but what about, in, what about in 24 hours time? How is God relevant there? How is God relevant to my job? How is God relevant to my relationships? How is God relevant to my hobbies? How do we know? that God is relevant to those things? How do, we, how do we know that God is relevant to taxation and sport and education and art? Well, we know it because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, the link is so obvious and easy for us to join, you know, how, how God is relevant to art. But we know those things can't just be a God-free zone. Because ultimately it's God who stands behind the existence of all of it. If it involves reality, God is relevant. And it informs, for example, how we show up in, uh, in evangelism, how we represent God to the people in our lives. Um, you know, when, when you're thinking about inviting someone to the Renew course, or when you're talking to some friend or relative about matters of faith, remember who made them. They have a creator, even if they don't realise it. That should be something that gives you confidence. People in the inner west already belong to God. We're just letting them know that, one by one. Well, that's creator and creation. My second point is word and reality. As my family will tell you, I've recently discovered a great love of phone dictation. I love dictating text messages. It's great. I dictate my shopping lists. I, you say it, pops up on the screen. I mean, I know, I I'm excited by it. Just let's leave it at that. And, and I read Genesis 1, and you think, how did God create? It's very specific. If you're, if you're a Bible reader or a Christian of long standing, you'll, you overlook this. It's very specific. God creates by his word. It doesn't just say, God made the light, God made the darkness, God made the sun. It doesn't just say that. God, God, God's word brings into reality the things that it names. God says, let there be light. And for God to say, let there be light, 
is for light to come into existence. It doesn't say God said let there be light, then he went to his shed and made light. And so the God that we meet here in Genesis chapter 1 is not just a God who is powerful. We meet a God whose power is his word. Or maybe you could swap that around. We meet a God whose word is his power. And this is central all the way through the Bible. It's central to our deepening understanding of God's, God's agency, if I can use that word, or, and his purpose. Uh, this, we bump into this again and again. Here's a, here's a good example. This is from the Old Testament. This is uh, the word of God in Isaiah 55. God says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower, bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God says, no, it's my word that accomplishes what I desire. When God desires something, it's by his word that he accomplishes it. And as we go on through the Old Testament, we have this sense of God's word being his power, being the the, the means by which he accomplishes his desire. And then famously there's this breakout moment at the start of the New Testament, at the start of the Gospel of John, when he writes, in the beginning was the word, and our ears prick up because we're reading Genesis 1, I think, in the beginning, yep, got it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him Nothing was made that has been made. And then this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. God's word becomes God in person. There's this this mind-blowing category blurring where the word of creation somehow shows up in the other reality, the createdness. If there's only two realities, creator and, and creation, all of a sudden you have the word of God in both. This means that in Jesus you encounter that reality-creating word of God. And in the gospel of Jesus, as we read on through the New Testament, the proclamation that same power is present. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, reflecting on the transformation that took place in their lives when they encountered the word of God. He says, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you. What a thing to say. That sense of God's power at work in you who believe. The power of God in creation is his word. And the power of God in salvation is his word. And these ideas keep bumping into each other, especially in the New Testament. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. When God says, let there be light, there is light. And when God, says, when God says, let there be resurrection, Jesus rises from the dead. 
That's his word. And when Jesus, the risen word of God, when he looks at you and says, let there be forgiveness, then there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness for you. God's word accomplishes what it says. Well, the third point this morning, that's word and reality. The third point is God's signature. A couple of weeks ago, Ruth and I went on holidays uh, in the Hunter Valley, and astonishing to to relate, in the Singleton Art Gallery is a current exhibition of Rembrandt's etchings. I know it sounds snobby. It was incredible to me. Uh, I don't really know art, but this is Rembrandt. And you go in there, and there's... You bring your nose up close. There's etchings by Rembrandt. I saw this picture, for example. And what's exciting about it is, because I don't really know art, I kind of look up close, and then you notice this. There's there's Rembrandt's signature right there in the corner. It's astonishing. And when we come to, to Genesis chapter 1, we think, okay, there are only two realities. There's a creator and there's dependent creation. But even back here in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God leaves a signature, a signature on his work. Because the passage has this predictable rhythm to it, as I said, this kind of sing-song pattern. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. God said, let birds fly across the earth. Uh, across, uh, across the vault of the sky. But when he comes to humans, he doesn't just say, God said, let human beings appear on the earth. He, he suddenly blows up the pattern and slows down. And instead we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock and all wild animals, over all creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's a a climactic moment. A creature in the image of the creator. It's a signature. It's a signature written into reality. Human beings aren't just created as slaves of the gods, as the ancients believed. Human beings aren't just the smartest of the animals, as the moderns believe. They're the image of God. What does it mean by image? How how are humans different from all the other creatures? Well, they are to rule. You see that. Let them rule over the birds and the uh, over the um, fish of the sea and the birds of the air. But not just that. They alone, out of all creatures, are directly addressed by God. All creatures are created by God's word, but only the humans in his image hear God's word and respond to it. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What is it in reality that most points to God? It's not the sunrise. Remarkable to say, it is the person sitting beside you. 
They're in the image of God. They don't have to be a Hemsworth or something. Just a regular human being. This is God's signature. This is God's autograph. What makes you precious as a human being? What gives you value? Why do you matter? And you might think, well, I matter because I'm smart and I'm productive and I try to make a difference in the world. Sure, but why do weak people matter? Why do unproductive people matter? Why do the elderly matter? Why do people with severe intellectual disabilities matter? Why do the unborn matter? Why do people with advanced dementia matter? Why do they have value? Because they're in the image of God. They're in the image of God. They, they are God's signature. Just as you are, precious to him. And this is the opposite of obvious. The most sophisticated societies in all of human history have rejected this idea. The, the Roman Empire, at the height of its cultural sophistication and its, its astonishing breakthroughs, nevertheless had, had the rampant abandonment on rubbish heaps of female babies. They had gladiatorial combat where someone's life existed purely in order to snuff out the life of another for the entertainment of a watching audience. People didn't matter. Or you fast forward even to, to the British Empire in the 18th century. You've got incredible technological advances. You've got British explorers in wooden boats going to the other end of the planet. And at the same time, millions trafficked in the Atlantic slave trade. <laughs> they didn't matter. And indeed in 21st century Western nations where people are increasingly convinced by things like voluntary assisted dying, they think, well, once your life takes on a certain degree of suffering and a certain amount of indignity, it loses value. And in each of those eras and many others, it has been Christians with their, with their Bible open who speak to the Roman Empire and say, no, these babies matter. No, these African slaves matter. They have value. No, people with terminal illness, they matter. You're precious to God because you're in the image of your creator. And for us, this can become a bit self-congratulatory because we're, we're good people. We think, yes, of course, everyone matters. What's shocking about God is Bad people, people who don't think this stuff, they matter. Horrible people, people who hurt others, they matter. They have value. People who deserve the worst that human justice can dispense, they matter. They have value. Like you, these people are precious. So precious to God that the word became flesh. And maybe at that moment, like in the Rembrandt exhibition, you encounter not just an autograph, but a self-portrait. God shows up in his world. The word became flesh. Jesus, the perfect image of God. 
And he accepted the worst punishments possible so that we would know our preciousness to God and that his word might create new life in us. And to know this word of God, to encounter him, is to know ourselves not just as a creature, nor even just as an image, but as a child, a child of God. Let me lead us in prayer. I'll pray the words, words of Revelation chapter 4. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen.